Good morning again. Uh, my name is Elliot. I'm the pastor here. It's a joy to have you with us on this uh, holiday weekend. Uh, thank you for um, taking Jesus seriously and not traveling uh, today, like the heathens that aren't next to you. Kidding. If you're visiting, I don't always use public shame, but it's often in here. Uh, it's too often, I guess. Um, so this summer, we are studying the Apostles' Creed, which we just confessed together that you said you believe. And um, the Apostles' Creed is this historic confession, this historic creed of the Christian church that has its origins in the first century. It was, it was uh, created by the apostles themselves, is what tradition would say. No one knows exactly who... Uh, uh, who originally came up with the words of it, but it was penned, it was written in the, the couple of centuries post the resurrection, post the inception of the church, and it had been passed down orally for several centuries up until that point. Um, and it was used as this uh, creedal, baptismal confession that when new believers, new converts in Jesus the Messiah would get baptized and they would be raised out of the water, they would confess what you just confessed, for thousands of years, the church has been confessing that this is what we believe. It's rooted in scripture, uh, and partially what makes it a beautiful thing for the church to confess and continue to confess is that it stretches across Christendom, that essentially all branches of Christianity believe what we just confess to, to believe, that Catholics and Orthodox and Episcopalians and Anglicans and Protestants and Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists, we, we all share in that biblical confession of what we just said we believed, and so it really does unite the church and say this is this is the church universal. This is what the, the biblical church has always believed. And in some ways, it can appear to be elementary. It can appear to be very simple, simplistic, oversimplistic, that it, we would say, well, of course I believe that God created the world. Of course I believe that Jesus is his son. Aren't these elementary things to believe? And we would say, yes, they are elementary and the temptation is in the church, especially that when we uh, remember or uh, are reminded of elementary things, we can tend to think, okay, now it's time to move on from those things. It's time to kind of graduate from this thing that we believe that appears elementary. But what is mysterious about this is that while it is elementary, it has this mysterious transcendence also. There, there are some wild things that you just said you believe, and they may just kind of roll off your tongue if you've grown up in the church and go, I believe in God the Father Almighty. But do you know you just confessed with your mouth that you believe that there's life after death? You just confessed that you believe that God spoke the cosmos into existence. He created the world. You believe some very transcendent, some very supernatural things. And so we have these elementary basic tenets, basic core beliefs of our faith that we just confessed, while at the same time they're mysterious. And so when the elementary and the mysterious are combined, we grow. That's actually why we're doing this this summer is to remind us what we believe, to kind of uh, re, re, uh, remind us, to remember ourselves. This is who we are. This is our treasure. This is our inheritance. This is who we are and what we believe. So we don't think we're adding to our faith, we're merely taking the riches of what has always belonged to us in this mysteriously elementary way to remind the Christian or the seeker, the skeptic, this is what the church has always believed. So we're just kind of working our way through the creed. We've looked at several lines already. Um, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And what we are gonna look at today is the very next line, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. 
conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And perhaps, especially in reading uh, and studying it this week, perhaps no other line of our creed and our confession has been more contended or challenged than that line, that Jesus was born of a virgin. It's like the outsider would say, you can believe in spiritual things, you can believe in a creator God, you can believe in all these things, you can believe even in some of the miraculous of your faith, but don't talk to me about virgins giving birth. I know enough science, I know enough natural theology, I know enough of how things work. That's too far, that bends too many rules, that, that breaks the rules of nature and possibility. Like you can have your God, you can have your faith, just don't talk to me about nonsense. And things like the virgin birth sound like nonsense. And we might even believe that, hey, this is, this is crazy for a modern, rational, post-enlightenment mind to believe, but don't, don't think of yourselves too highly. This has always been hard to believe. This has been hard to believe since it happened. In John chapter eight, Jesus's virgin birth is challenged by people in his own day. They call him a mamzer, which was a first century insult, where they're going, we know your dad. He's Joseph. You were raised by a carpenter. We know your biological father. Your, God, your, your dad is not God. You did not have a divine birth, Jesus. You come from Nazareth. We know you. We saw where you grew up. Don't, don't pull one over our heads. We know. The divine birth of Jesus has always been strange to believe, because what we are saying we believe when we confess this line of the creed is we're saying we believe Jesus in a mysterious way was conceived by the Holy Spirit, which means he's fully divine. He has a divine nature because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, we're saying we believe he was born of a Virgin Mary, which means he's fully human. So this line of the confession is where we get our historically uh, uh, confess our historically believed reality of Christendom, which is we believe Jesus is fully divine and fully human. He is both. He has two natures. He is fully divine and he is fully human. That's strange. That's not how it works. That, that's weird to believe. People don't have two natures. That's not, that's not something that is normal. That's not something that science or the world would say to you is possible to which the church should say in response to those things, not even in an argumentative sense to try to prove anybody wrong, we should say, yeah, it is strange. <laughs> it's weird. I don't know how the immaculate conception happened. I wasn't there. It's never happened to me. I don't know. I don't know how this works. I can't explain this to you. It's weird. It's mind-bending. If you said the creed a moment ago, if you confessed it when everyone else was confessing it, then you confess to believing something rather strange. Reminded of a scene in a, I was reading this commentary this week on the Apostles' Creed. My week is riveting, okay? I, I read commentaries on historic creeds. But I was reading this commentary on, this, on the creed this week and I was reminded of this story of the scene in Alice in Wonderland or through the looking glass where Alice is talking with the queen and she says, I can't believe in that. And the queen says, well, can't you? And Alice responds and says, no, one can't believe in impossible things. To which the queen says, I dare say you haven't had much practice, dear. Sometimes I've believed in six impossible things before breakfast. See, this is, this is where the majesty and the mystery should come together. I'm not trying to get you to check your brain or your logic at the door. I'm not saying throw science and reason out at all. The, the Christian faith actually welcomes that. 
But what the creed is inviting you to believe, this is kind of where the elementary becomes this transcendently mysterious thing and vice versa. What the creed is inviting us into believing into this place is maybe it's okay that what you confess you believe you don't fully understand and that's okay. That it's actually like on us in this post-enlightenment world, it's actually on us in this uh, post-modern world where we have elevated the idea of reason and natural sciences to be the penultimate dictator of what we can and can't believe, that what if there was transcendence that you couldn't understand? Like, is it okay that you live in a world where you don't understand everything? And would you dare to believe, especially in Christianity, that you can know something even if you don't understand it? It's not like blind faith and check everything out and, 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 and leave it at the door and please don't use your logic and your reason when you're in here. It's actually taking us a little bit deeper in that and saying, would you dare to imagine a, a Christianity, a religion, a faith where you don't understand everything and it's okay? G.K. Chesterton famously said, it's the logician, like the one who uses logic, who seeks to get the heavens into his head and it is his head that splits. It is the poet, however, who only asks to get his head into the heavens. Like we're this people, we use logic, we use reason, and we're trying to like cram heaven into our heads and our head splits. And actually this mystery of faith, this beauty of faith would say, actually, would you quit trying to cram heaven into your head? Would you actually dare to take a risk and say, could I get my head into the heavens? Could I just peek around? Could I poke around? Could I actually imagine something that I don't fully understand, but I would dare to believe it? See, maybe instead of trying to understand it, maybe we should be asking about this confession of the virgin birth. Maybe we should be asking, what's heavenly about this? I may not understand, but but what's heavenly about this? I was talking with Joseph Patton this week as we were planning the worship service together, and he said, maybe the question is not, is it provable? Maybe the question is, is it beautiful? That actually you long for beauty more than you long for reason. Do you know that? Like you want to find things beautiful way more than you actually want to understand everything. And maybe the question when it comes to things like the virgin birth is, is this beautiful? And so the question we're going to be asking today as we walk through this line is this, why is the virgin birth precious? Why is it precious to you? Why, why should it enchant you? Why should it draw you in and say, I don't understand it, but I got to believe it. So when we confess that Jesus was born of a virgin, we wanna see how precious it is, we must first start to see how this idea of this miraculous birth fits into the whole story of scripture. See, the story of scripture, if you start in Genesis and work your way to the virgin birth in the New Testament, actually miraculous births play a starring role in the whole story of scripture. Isaac, child of promise to Abraham and Sarah was a miraculous birth. Moses has a miraculous birth birth story. Samson has a, Samuel has a miraculous birth story. At great turning points of Israel's history, there always seems to be kind of out of left field, kind of when no one would expect it, this, this woman who should not be pregnant but ends up pregnant and there's this miracle child in her womb and somehow the reader is drawn in to not asking, how did all this happen? And yet, I can't believe this is happening. 
Israel's story is a story of miraculous births and the miraculous births always seem to indicate that God is on the move to save his people. So if you know Israel's story starting from the Old Testament and then we get to the person of Jesus, we get to the Virgin Mary in Matthew and Luke chapter one and we hear of this miraculous birth that someone's pregnant who shouldn't be. Even Mary's cousin in in. Uh, Luke chapter one, Mary's cousin Elizabeth is miraculously pregnant with John the Baptist. Whenever there's a miracle birth happening, God seems to be on the move. And so we should see this virgin birth as it fits in the story of scripture as saying, this is yet again God showing up in a miraculous way and he's moving to save his people. Silhouetted against the backdrop of God's promises is the virgin birth of Jesus. And so we move into our passage today understanding that, that miraculous births play this kind of like, a, they're like blips on a radar. Like, hey, if a miracle birth is happening in scripture, you should be paying attention because God's about to move and do something. And this passage that we're gonna read, I, I wrestled with even what passage to preach from because there's so many places you could go to try to hold this miracle and hold this mystery together. But the passage today holds this mystery of fully divine and fully human together. And I want you to hear the language as we read it, that the author of this, of this book, the author of this section of scripture is not intent on you fully understanding what's going on in the virgin birth. They don't care if you understand it. What the author is intent on is, do you see the beauty that is because of the virgin birth? That's what, that's what this passage is communicating. It's the book of Hebrews chapter four. If you wanna turn there in your Bibles, it'll be on the screen. Hebrews chapter four, just three short verses talking about the fully divine, fully human nature of Jesus. This is Hebrews chapter four, starting in verse 14. The author of Hebrews says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's the word of the Lord, amen. So we're gonna use kind of that last verse as our guide through the passage that would make us kind of lean into the mystery and the beauty of this fully divine, fully human Jesus. Note note with me what verse 16 says because this is what's gonna guide our, our time for the next couple hours. I'm kidding. Here's what, here's what verse 16 says. It says, let it throw, we throw, Emmy, we throw verse 16 up there. She's probably already on it. There we go. Second week, Emmy's volunteering. Way to go, Emmy. It says this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay, so something that came before this, which we're gonna dive into, lands us in that verse, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you read that, do you want that? Do you want confidence? <laughs> that's, what the, that's what the verse is inviting you into and saying can be yours. Do you wanna receive mercy and grace to bear you up, to carry you when you have needs? Does anybody want those things for the things that they're facing? Do you want more confidence Do you want mercy? Do you want grace to bear you up, to hold you up when you're in need? Because Hebrews just told you that all of that is possible because of the virgin birth. 
The creedal confession, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, is the pathway to confidence and to finding mercy and grace when you have needs. How's that possible? Well, that's what the author lays out in the first couple of verses. But first, let's start with this one. How is confidence possible because of the immaculate, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? How does that give you confidence? Okay, in Jewish practice, in Jewish tradition, in Jewish uh, liturgy and confession and religious practice, the high priest was the one that made sacrifices on behalf of the people. So the high priest would take a sacrifice that somebody brought to the temple, would slaughter the spotless lamb or would slaughter the spotless dove. They would slaughter them and then the bloodshed that was cast on the altar by the priest would be what atoned for the sin of the one who was bringing the sacrifice. But the high priest, the priest was the one that had to intercede by spilling the blood of the sacrifice and basically pleading with God and saying, I know that you could require blood of the one who's offering the sacrifice, but instead of requiring their blood, would you take this blood of a spotless sacrifice and not make the sacrificer pay for it? And so the, the standing of God's people, the masses, the, 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 the group of the congregation, the, the standing of them before God depended on the work of the priest because he was interceding for them and not just anybody could offer sacrifices. One's access to the Almighty was dependent on the work of the priest. And what this passage and, and lots of other passages in the book of Hebrews talk about is that because you have a great high priest, Jesus, who was not just your high priest offering a sacrifice for you, he was the sacrifice because he was both. The high priest shed his own blood and his own blood was divine blood. Now, because he's fully divine, it means that your access to the Almighty is dependent on the quality of the sacrifice and on the quality of the high priest. Means that your access is now based on his access. The blood of the high priest who is also divine now grants you your access. Your pathway to the almighty, your pathway to the divine is dependent on the sacrifice of your high priest who is Jesus. His blood is your credentials, in other words. Anybody been backstage at a concert or like been in a VIP room? Like your, his blood is your credentials to access. That is a way like sacrilegious comparison to what we're talking about, but it helps, right? His blood is your credentials. So what kind of credentials, what kind of access does the blood of the Son of God, does the blood of a divine high priest grant for you? What kind of access does it give you to the Almighty? Verse 16, one more time. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. The author, when he says throne, when he's talking about the throne room in the heavens and the holy of holies, here's what he's talking about. He's talking about the throne room of the Almighty. This is the place where faces melt off. This is the place where when you walk in, you are undressed. This is the place where glory dwells. This is the place that you don't belong and you would be exposed the moment that you walked in. The author of Hebrews says, into that place, draw near to that place with confidence. What is he talking about? How can he talk about the scariest place in the universe and say, when you walk up to that door, you walk up with confidence? 
Are you out of your mind, author of Hebrews? An Old Testament Jew would have thought that, not just sacrilegious, they would have thought that heresy. You can't walk up to the throne room with confidence. I don't have any confidence near that place. That's the place that exposes me for who I really am. That's the place where my charades don't work. That's the place where my righteousness disintegrates. That's the place where none of my games work. That's the place where my humor can't save me. That's the place where my achievements don't matter. And the author of Hebrews says, yeah, that place where you feel completely undone, where you feel like you have no right to be there, where you feel like you, are, you have imposter syndrome out the wazoo, that place draw near to with confidence. Confident of what? Christian, here is where your confidence stands in the place, the only place that real confidence grows. Because Jesus is God, you approach the throne room confident. Why? Because you belong there now. You have every right to be in the throne room because of the blood of Jesus. His blood is your credentials and you don't stand on your merit but on the merit of Jesus. His access is your access. His achievements are now your achievements. Jesus, the divine son of God, suffered for you. And in so doing, he not only pardoned your sin, he granted you his righteousness, which means you now walk into the throne room as glowing and as pure and as radiant as one covered in the righteousness of Jesus because Jesus suffered for you. And because Jesus is divine, his work is not the work of a mere human. Because Jesus is divine, his sacrifice didn't just clean your slate until the next time you would have to make a sacrifice. Because Jesus is divine, his sacrifice shattered the slate. There is no more slate for you because you now have a perfect record before God because your merit now stands on the merit of Jesus. Jesus' righteousness is now yours. His blood is your credentials. His merit is your merit and his merit is divine. So, Christian, let your confidence explode because your God suffered for you. Only in Christianity do you get a whiff of the idea that the divine one would suffer for the sinful ones. In some religions you get like, hey, here's how to walk through suffering. In some religions and ways of thinking you get, here's ways to avoid suffering. In some, in some religions you get, hey, here's what to know when you walk through suffering. Here's what punishment might be coming on you because you're suffering. No other place in the world will you get a divine one who will suffer for the sinful ones. And that's what Hebrews just told you. God suffered for you and now his blood is your credentials into the throne room. Some translations say this, when, it, when our English Standard Version ESV says, uh, enter, enter that place with confidence, let us draw near with confidence. Some translations say, enter the throne room boldly. Like you bust in the door and you act like you deserve to be there because you do deserve to be there, not because of anything you've done, but because Jesus has done it for you and Jesus deserves to be there. Does Jesus walk into the throne room of God with confidence? Does he walk in boldly? Heck yeah, he does, because he belongs to be there. That's what Hebrews just said. The way that Jesus walks into that room, you can walk into that room. His blood now covers you. You have every right to be in that room and claim all the promises and goodness of God on your behalf. You draw near to that place with confidence, boldly. Like how confident do you think you would begin to be in real life 
if you realize that any room you walked into, there was nothing to prove. You think your confidence would grow if you walked into some gathering, any gathering, and felt like, I don't have to prove anything here. I don't have to show something. I don't have to display something. I don't have to make conversations about me. I have confidence now because now all the pressure seems to be gone that in this room, I don't feel the need to prove myself. How confident do you think you would be if in every conversation you had, you realized you can stop comparing to see if you're better or worse than the person you're talking with? You think your confidence would grow if you realized, I don't have to compare myself to these people anymore? How confident do you think you would be if in the solitude and the recesses of your own heart and mind, you realized there was nothing you could do to stop God from being good to you ever again? Because the merit that you have before God is now the merit of Jesus. His blood is your credentials. So the Bible promises that he will withhold no good thing from any righteous one. You now are covered in the righteousness of Jesus. He will withhold no good thing from you ever again. How much do you think your confidence would grow if you knew nothing I could do could stop God from being good to me ever again? Do you see how this Jesus, this divine Jesus shedding blood and suffering for you as your high priest and as the sacrifice can grow your confidence? If you can enter the throne room of heaven with confidence, I promise you can enter your cafeteria with confidence. <laughs> Like if the throne room is settled, what does any other room have to do to you? What can any other room, th if, if you can enter the throne room of heaven with confidence, what about walking into this room or walking into a small group or walking into a family reunion or a family wedding where all the old family systems are coming up and you're going, oh gosh, I don't, oh, where's my confidence going? But if the throne room has been settled, every other room loses all of its power. <laughs> If Jesus has settled the most intimidating room in the universe by suffering for you, you can have confidence in any other room that you enter because the divine one has suffered for you. So you enter the throne room with confidence. That's how the fully divine nature of Jesus gives you confidence. But then it's not only confidence that is born from this dual nature conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, he's fully divine but fully human, we also see something else promised here because of this mystery. Verse 16, one more time, just to remember. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mercy and grace for the road ahead. Sustenance and joy for the road ahead. Endurance and nourishment for whatever you face, not even for the road ahead, for the road you're on, like for this morning, mercy and grace to build you up, to carry you up, to hold you up. How does Jesus's divine humanity, his dual nature, how does the virgin birth give us that? Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 15 just told you not only is Jesus divine, he's also completely human. In every respect, he was made like us. Jesus knows what it's like to be human because he is one. 
And because Jesus knows what it's like to be human, here's what verse 15 just told you. He's able to sympathize with you. This is, this is where like Alice in Wonderland, like this is getting nearly impossible to believe. And I would say, let's believe one more impossible thing before lunch together. Do you know the power of sympathy? Do you know what giving someone else true sympathy can actually give to them? Do you know what, when you receive sympathy, true sympathy, what it can actually do for you? There's been some distinction recently, it's fine, but some distinction recently made between sympathy and empathy, and, 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 that's, and it's fine, and I know what people are saying when they make that distinction. I'm gonna tell you what this word means biblically. You can use whatever other definitions you want, um, but this word here, let me tell you what it means. Sympathios, it's two words combined. Sympathios, sympathy, literally means to suffer with someone. Pathios is to suffer, the passion, like the ache, the groan, the, 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 the suffering with. So sympathios, sympathy, means to literally suffer with other people. The essence of sympathizing, the, effen- the essence of sympathy happens when you feel what others are feeling as if it were happening to you. You are seeing their suffering to such a degree and, ex- and, and you are so present with them to such a degree that what they are going through, you are now going through because you know what it's like to feel like what they're going through. So you can actually suffer with them. Even if you're not going through the same exact storylines, I know what the core of that place is like because I've been there too. So let me suffer with you now. Let me sympathize. Let me sympathios with you. Meaning, you don't make every conversation about you. Like where someone's telling a story and you go, you know what, that reminds me. Let me tell you about how I've suffered worse than you have because I'm in the suffering Olympics and I'm the gold medalist here. And so let me make sure you know that I've got a story that makes that you kind of feel like you're not suffering as bad as me. That's not what sympathizing is. Sympathizing means you have to actually forget about you, forget about yourself, listen to them in such a present way where you actually are able to enter into their experience with them and then share their joy or hold their sorrow with them. You literally are bearing witness to their pain in such a present way or their joy in such a present way that they feel like in this thing that I'm experiencing, I'm not alone in this anymore because someone is doing it with me to get as close as you can to, experience, to experiencing what they're experiencing. The joy and the pain they're feeling, the confusion and the clarity they're feeling, the despair or the relief they're, they're feeling. I'm with you to such a degree that I, now your experience has become my experience and I can share in the experience with you because I know what that's like. And now instead of just trying to get you out of the place that you're in because I don't really like when you're sad or like when you're uncomfortable because now I don't know what to say. Now I'm feeling uncomfortable. So let me just throw out some Hallmark Christianity lines that kind of make all this go away or try to make us kind of escape and numb ourselves from what's going on right now. These are all great coping mechanisms. But instead of doing that, I'm now gonna go there to your place with you sympathiously and I'm going to join you in your place. 
not try to save you or fix you or rescue you from your place. I'm gonna go to your place with you. One literal translation from a New Testament scholar where he, he translates the whole New Testament, literally, he translates this passage and he says it this way. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel our weaknesses with us. Jesus, the God-man who was born of a virgin, born of a woman, he was born of a virgin and born of a woman so that he could feel your weaknesses with you. Do you know the power of experiencing sympathy from people? Do you know how much life and strength and mercy and grace and endurance it could give you to know that the Son of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin, do you know that experiencing his sympathy, to know that he suffers with you, do you know what kind of strength that would give you? To know that in what you are going through, you are not alone because you have a high priest who is able to sympathios with you, to sympathize with you. Brene Brown gives this cage or cave analogy where she talks about like suffering like you're in this cave, like this dark cave of despair or sadness or loss or sorrow. And there's a difference between someone kind of sticking their head in the cave and going, man, it looks really dark in here. I'm so sorry about that. Like, let me know when you get out of the cave so that we can be friends again and I don't feel uncomfortable anymore. There's a difference between that and someone sticking their head in and going, man, I'm really sorry which is, is kind, but it's not sympathy. If there's a difference between that and someone going, I'm gonna go down and get in your cave with you. I'm gonna be in this cave with you as long as you're here. And why am I gonna do that? Because I can suffer with you. Someone who sticks their head down in there and says to you, I'm coming in the cave with you and I'm gonna feel what you're feeling because I care about you and you're in the cave right now. And so I'm gonna get in the cave with you and not try to fix you and save you and get you out of this cave a whole lot faster. I'm just gonna suffer with you down here. In order to feel what someone else is feeling like that, like to get in their cave is really hard work. Do you know why? Because you're gonna have to feel what they're feeling. What if they're feeling devastated? What if they're feeling all alone? What if they're feeling terrified? What if they're feeling afraid? What if they're feeling uh, abandoned? You, if you're gonna truly sympathize with them, that means you're gonna feel those things. It, it takes a lot to truly sympathize with other people. And Hebrews 4 just told you, Jesus gets in your cave. He suffers with you. He feels what you're feeling because he knows what it's like to feel it. That's why he was born of a woman. That's why he was born of the Virgin Mary so that he could know what it's like to be human. Oh, and by the way, it's not just a mere human who's getting in the cave with you. It's God himself getting in the cave with you. He's in the cave with you. He's sympathizing with you. And then look at what Hebrews says. Look at what our, our section says about this whole experience. This blew my mind this week as I was reading this passage over and over and over again. This popped off the page. Verse 15 is a long verse. I'm gonna jump through it, but look at what he says. It says, he is able to sympathize, dot, 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 yet without sin. 
Okay, that certainly speaks to his like perfect divinity. He had a perfect record of righteousness. He never sinned, so he was a perfect blood sacrifice. He was a spotless lamb. Yes, but he's able to sympathize with you and not sin while he sympathizes with you. Let me explain this. When we sympathize with other people as best as we can, when we sympathize with them, we still sin. Like I feel what you're feeling and then I judge you for feeling that way. I feel what you're feeling, but secretly I'm feeling a little bit superior to you because I don't struggle the way that you struggle and I maybe didn't make the decisions that you made to get into this situation where you're feeling this way now. So I may be like trying to feel what you're feeling, but now I'm condemning you. Or this is, could not be more true than with your own children if you've got little ones. But when you feel what they're feeling, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry you feel that way. And then you're feeling what they're feeling and then you're kind of done feeling what they're feeling. Like I would love to sympathize with you until I'm tired of feeling this way. Like I have a limit to my sympathy. Like, oh, patient dad, patient dad, until not so patient dad anymore. Like, you are done having this temper tantrum now. You are done feeling sad about this, because I'm done feeling sad about this. We get tired of sympathizing. We get, we get judgmental when we sympathize. We feel superior and self-righteous. But Jesus, not just because he's able to sympathize, but here's what Hebrews 4.15 just told you. He's able to sympathize without sin meaning he never does any of those things to you. He never tires of his sympathy. He never runs out of tears. He never sympathizes and then condemns you. He never gets in the cave with you and then can't endure the uncomfortability of the cave anymore and then he's out until you get your act together and get out of the cave yourself. Jesus has sinless sympathy for you. In other words, you've never been loved by anyone the way that Jesus loves you. You've never experienced it. Because anytime you've experienced the beauty of other people's sympathy and empathy and you feel that they feel what you're feeling, it has a limit. Not with Jesus. Sinless sympathy is only possible with one who is both divine and human. So Christian... This is where you get your confidence. You enter the throne room boldly because you've been covered by the blood of the divine son of God. His blood is your credentials. You belong in that room because Jesus belongs in that room. Your God suffered for you. But Christian, this is also where you receive mercy and find grace in time of need because of the sinless sympathy of Jesus for you. He suffers with you. The divine son of God suffered for you and he suffers with you. And my friends, none of this is possible without the virgin birth. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, behold your God suffering for and suffering with you. This is what makes this line of our creed precious. This is what makes this line of our creed beautiful even if you don't understand it, because no one understands it. I'm not asking you to get the heavens into your head. I'm asking us to get our head into the heavens and might we get our hearts there too. That we would receive this. That's what he says here, receive mercy and find grace. Would you, would you stop in whatever is, um, is causing you to not be able to receive this because you don't understand it? Would you just behold what the Bible says is true about Jesus who suffered for and suffers with you? 
because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, this is your Jesus. Let's pray before we come to the table together. Jesus, this divinely mysterious God-man who not only has perfect blood to cover us but has sinless sympathy to suffer with us. Would you dwell with us now? Would you be in a particular way palpably present here as we come to your table? That you're always with us but you promised us that you're with us in a special way through this sacrament of communion. So would you do that for us now? Would you be with us here and give us the gift of being present in these next few moments that we might not leave here too hastily, but let you be in the cave with us to find mercy and grace for our need. In Jesus' name, amen.